Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29 is our text this morning. We've been going through the book of Mark, and, uh, and this is where we're at so far. Verse 14, I'll read it, and then I'll pray. King Herod heard of it, heard that Jesus was around doing all these things that we've been talking about for six months. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said uh, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But when an opportunity came, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' uh, daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give, up, give to you up to half my kingdom. Then she went and asked her mom, What should I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and because his guests he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Welcome to church. That's our stack this morning. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are, and we believe that you are good, that you are after our good. And we know and we believe, God, that our purpose is to enjoy, is to enjoy you, God, and to glorify you. And our hearts are not at rest until they find rest in you. And I know that there's some damaged people in this room that have been damaged by churches and pastors and friends and parents and whatever. I pray, God, that during these next several minutes that you would begin by your Holy Spirit to heal us, Lord. That you would show us that you desire to forgive us that we would have a relationship with you. I pray, Jesus, you would be exalted today. I ask, God, that you would as we're talking directly about uh, a really unfun topic, um, that you would help us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, God. We look to you, I ask that you'd give me wisdom, and you would anoint my mouth and my heart and my mind to proclaim your truth, Lord. This is your truth, God. It's yours. And so we ask that you would do this today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the story and the theme of Mark's gospel has been primarily about 
Jesus. That's what we've been talking about for the last six plus, almost seven now months, on the seventh month, Jesus. And so what Mark does here is he talks about primarily Jesus, who Jesus really is, his person, his ministry, his miraculous deeds, his work to redeem sinners, how he gave his life as a ransom for many. That is what this book is about. So we've been in the middle of this sweeping narrative about Jesus, and that's what this whole book is about. Mark's whole book is about Jesus, except for right here. This is the only place in Mark's gospel where the narrative, where the focus is not Jesus. Mark breaks here to talk about someone else. Why does he break right here? Why does Mark break away from this narrative about Jesus for for a, a while and vividly gives this detail of this beheading of John the Baptist? He stops for a while and then he goes to actually to talk about in juxtaposition another king. Because you know how the whole time Mark's been talking about Jesus the king, who's announcing a kingdom. He here talks about a tyrannical, neurotic king and the events that lead him to behead the great prophet and forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. Mark's narrative, Jesus is the king, the servant king who proclaims and inaugurates and embodies the kingdom of God. That's what Mark's whole gospel is about. This is the servant king, the Messiah. This is the savior king who's come to redeem humanity. This is who he is, Jesus. And here, when Jesus comes on the scene in Mark's narrative, this is how Jesus comes on the scene in chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is here and now. Repent and believe in the gospel. And here in chapter 6, Mark inserts this juxtaposition of King Jesus with this pseudo-king, pseudo-king, and we use them in quotations because he really wasn't a king, this pseudo-king, Herod, the supposed king or ruler, actually he was a tetrarch appointed by Rome over the Jews. And specifically the the area that Herod ran was where Jesus and his disciples were doing ministry. So Herod was this pseudo-king over where Jesus was saying the kingdom of God has come. So get this. Jesus is in Herod's land, who he's supposed to be king over, saying the king is here, he has arrived, and doing all these miraculous deeds where Herod's kingdom is. And what Mark does is he puts this juxtaposition, a tyrannical, neurotic, crazy king, or Jesus the king. So he inserts this other king here. And what he does here is Herod reaches, the word reaches Herod that people are talking about Jesus. Word is going out that this is who Jesus is, and Jesus is doing all these wonderful and miraculous deeds, and Herod hears of it. They hear the report of the little girl that we read about a couple weeks ago that had been raised from the dead, and massive amounts of people who gather to hear him preach about the coming kingdom of God, and they're hearing these reports. They reach, the reports reach the king's ears that Jesus is performing these signs and these wonders and healing people that are paralyzed and touching and healing lepers. And Herod and his people start to speculate about who this unknown prophet from nowhere is. And some of his people come up and they think, who is this man? 
who is performing these miracles and delivers these powerful sermons? Who is this Jesus? And some start to say, well, he's one of the prophets of old. That's who he is. He's one of the prophets of old. And somewhat, no, 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 he's Elijah. But Herod is convinced that Jesus is actually John the Baptist come back from the dead to haunt him. That's who Herod thinks he is. No, he must be John the Baptist because isn't that what guilty consciences do? Don't they always come back, those horrible things you have done or have, that have been done to you always come back to haunt you? You get that sick rush in your, the pit of your stomach when you remember what you did, like Lady Macbeth sleepwalking and trying over and over in vain to wash the blood spot from her hand. Out, damned spot. Out, I say. My attempt at Shakespeare. <laughs> get out. And then she also tries to remove the smell of blood from her hands, and she says, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Why? Because the spot was on her soul. She, was, she had a guilty conscience. Or, like that famous short story by Edgar Allan Poe, Telltale Heart, if you've ever read that. I read that in junior high. It freaked me out. I still have nightmares about that, that thing, that, that short story, where the main character thinks he hears the beating of the old man who he killed and dismembered and put under the floorboards. He still thinks he hears his heart when the police come in to investigate, and they all sit on, on chairs over the dead body. And what he says, though, he thinks he clear, clears the crime scene up. Oh, I've made lip. No evidence. He actually says, there is nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatsoever. I cleaned up the evidence. Nobody will ever know I killed a man, cut up his body, and shoved him underneath the floor. Nobody will ever know. So he's confident, and the cops come in, and they're all sitting around in the room that he killed him and chopped him up. And all of a sudden, the main character hears a slight boom, boom. And then he gets louder and louder, boom, boom, and louder. And he's like, that's the old man's heart. And they must hear it because I hear it. And they must hear it. But they're acting like they don't hear it. They must be mocking me. And he goes insane and he gets louder and louder and louder to at the end of the story, he finally says, villains, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It's the beating of his hideous heart. He had all the evidence, but he had a guilty conscience. This is what's going on with Herod. He, it, look at what he confesses when he hears about Jesus. Look at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, when Herod heard about Jesus, it says, he said, John, whom I beheaded, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He says here, I did it. I killed him. He's back now, and he's back with more power. That's what this means here. Because the reason why Herod thinks it's John the Baptist raised from the dead, because John the Baptist and Jesus had the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. They both had the exact same message, but Jesus now has more power. And what Herod thinks is, well, he has, he must have resurrection power. He must be risen from the dead. That's why not only does he have the same message, but he has all this power now. And what Mark does here is he, he flashes back to how this happened, how Herod ended up serving John the Baptist's head on a platter at his birthday party. Now, I want to say sorry. This is like a rated R message, I guess, for violence. 
already, and we're like two minutes into it. And um, I don't even know what's up with this church, but every single happy holiday we have, we do these bummer sermons. I think Valentine's Day we did a sermon on demons, and now um, we're, uh, at this rate, uh, Christmas is not looking good. I'll just say that right now. But this is what he does. He flashes back to what happened. How did John the Baptist's head end up getting severed and Herod doing it? So this is how we'll look at this flashback and what went wrong with Herod. The confrontation of truth and the consequence of sin. And this is a heavy message, so we'll only do two points today. The confrontation of truth and the consequence of sin. First of all, the confrontation of truth. How did John end up in prison in the first place? Now, his career as a prophet started pretty great. He was baptizing in the Jordan River, and he had masses of people following him, going up to him from Judea and Jerusalem to see him, to hear him preach, and to be baptized by him. And John's message was one of repentance. John preached repentance, repent, and he preached universal repentance, meaning he applied it with equal consistency to the religious and the irreligious, to the great and the lowly. Everyone is in sin and everyone needs to repent and ready their heart for Jesus who is coming. Everyone. Righteous, unrighteous. Religious, irreligious. Stately, lowly. It doesn't matter. Everybody needs to repent. However, John didn't just speak generally. He wasn't just like, hey, everybody's in sin in here. Does everybody agree with that? Everybody's like, yes, everyone's in sin. Everybody needs to repent. Okay, we all need to repent. John got real specific. Look at what happens in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been saying to Herod to his face, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. See, Herodias was the daughter of Herod's half-brother. That's why her name is Herodias. She was part of the Herod family. And so Herodias was Herod's niece. And history tells us that when they first met in Rome, Herod and Herodias, they probably said, hey, cool, your name's kind of like mine, but <laughs> she was also the wife of another of one of his half-brothers, his sis- so she was his sister-in-law. So she was his sister-in-law and his niece, but he still seduced her, persuaded her to leave his half-brother Philip and to marry him and become his wife. This was absolutely unlawful according to Jewish law, and he was a ruler over, over a Jewish territory. So this was an offense, and you cannot marry, in Jewish law, your brother's wife. And John called him on it to his face, said, you married your brother's wife, you need to repent. Now, this is often the deal breaker in coming to church right here, the deal breaker in following Jesus, the deal breaker in getting involved in Christian community. It's always, it's normally, I guess I right, to say, okay, to say, hey, we're all sinners in here, and we all need to repent in here. Everybody's a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We all need to repent. And everybody's pretty cool with that. And it's true, and we believe it, and we say it every week, very often. 
As Martin Luther said, the Christian life should be one of constant repentance. So we believe that. But what about when things get real specific? They move past the general and get really, really specific. When it moves past, hey, we're all sinners, to a face-to-face, stop sleeping with your girlfriend. At that point, we're like, whoa, calm down, pastor. You don't even know me. Don't be judging me, all right? And that's a deal breaker for a lot of people. Like, whoa, 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 you don't have to start naming my sin. You start naming my sin, I'm out of here. I don't need your judgmental crap. That's not a part of my life. Don't judge me. Or you're drinking too much. When it starts to get specific, you're like, listen, you don't know how much I can drink. You don't know, my alcohol tolerance is amazing. So don't tell me how much I can drink and cannot drink. Don't put your religious trips on me. Now, you see, we can all mostly handle the general we all sin. Everybody sins. But when God gets specific in your life, or when a teaching like this or a church like this gets specific, or someone in your life gets specific in your life, our reactions aren't that far off from Herod and Herodias. John confronted Herod with the truth of his sin and called him to repent to make it right and to live according to God's word. And Herodias wanted to kill him. And Herod threw him in prison. See, the truth will make you free, but first it will make you miserable. See, the gospel is always tragedy before it's comedy. It's always bad news before it's good news. Bad news is you're screwed up here and here. Specifically, you're messed up here and here. The way that you think, the way that you live, here and here are messed up, and you need to repent and turn to Jesus. And most of us can't get past that initial bad news. We can't take it. If we were honest, we want to shoot the messenger. No matter if it's a friend, a church, a pastor, a parent, whatever. We don't like to hear our sin getting specific. We react like Herodias. Kill him. Shut that judgmental fool up right now. But what Herod saw was this little glimmer of hope because someone was finally telling Herod the truth. No one had ever told Herod the truth before, but John the Baptist had the guts to tell him the truth. And in some strange and twisted way, Herod liked hearing the truth. Look at verse 20. It says, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. See, Herod was divided. He didn't know what to do. He Should he listen to John and repent? It sounded right, but what would that mean for his life? What if Herod actually repented? What would that mean for his career? What would that mean for his so-called kingdom? What would that mean for his sinful relationship? He didn't know what to do. He heard John gladly time and time again, but he never made a decision. And the reason why Herod never made a decision was the same reason you and I never make a decision when confronted with the truth of our imperfections and the implications of repentance, because we want to stay in control. To stay in control of our relationships, sexual or otherwise, to stay in control of our career paths, 
to stay in control of our reputations, our finances. We even want to stay in control of our weight. We are twisted people. We want to be in control. Mark, Mark here loves irony, and he uses irony throughout the whole book. And beginning in verse 21 is a very tragic, ironic statement. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came. Now, the opportunity came for what? For Herod to repent? No, for Herodias to kill John. And this here we see the consequence now of sin. What are the consequences of Herod not repenting, of Herod living in his sin? What was Herod's vice this whole time? What did John the Baptist confront him with? his sexual sin. And who knew that better than the woman who was committing sexual sin with him, Herodias? So during, during Herod's birthday party, with all his noble and military commanders leading men of Galilee, were all at his little shindig, his little birthday party. Wine was flowing, beer was flowing, women were everywhere. This was a very sexually charged party. This little pericope here is very graphic. Imagine, oh no, don't imagine, sorry. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what to say at this point, but this was a crazy party because they were drunk, they were sexually aroused, there were women, prostitutes everywhere at a party like this. The Herodians were very, very, very famous for throwing these type of parties. And right at the height of it, Herodias sends in her daughter to dance for Herod her daughter who was her in her late teens, to dance for Herod. And we're not talking about the ballerina recital routine dance. We're talking about a very erotic sexual dance. It says literally, it pleased Herod and his guest, and that word is very sexually charged. She did what she did before these men, pleased everyone there, and Herod got so excited that he offers up to her half his kingdom. Now, it's funny because Herod didn't have a kingdom. He was bragging. He was acting like he had a kingdom. He was acting like he was really a king. He didn't have half the kingdom. He was a tetrarch appointed by Rome. Rome owned everything, not him. It wasn't even his to give away. He couldn't give it away, but he said it anyways. He was trying to impress his guest. So she goes and asks mom what she should ask for. Mom, okay, I did a good job, by the way. Um, thanks for training and all that stuff. Anyway, so he said I can have anything up to half his kingdom. And without missing a beat, she says, the head of John the Baptist. Without missing a beat. She knew exactly, Herodias knew exactly what she was doing. She held a grudge against John the Baptist because John the Baptist showed her her sin and she hated him for it. I want his head. And like mother, like daughter, she adds a little creative license, walks up to Herod and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Like she like one-ups her mom. She goes, how was that one? Mom's like, that was going. That was awesome. <laughs> on a platter. And Mark 6.26 says, and the king was exceedingly sorry. At that moment, I guarantee you he went and it slapped him to total sobriety. And what am I going to do now? So the Bible talks about two types of sorrow. A sorrow that leads to death and a sorrow that leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation 
and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, what is this talking about? At the moment of realization of sin or of wrongdoing, when sorrow of wrong hits you, I really messed up here. That can be an actually a beautiful emotion that leads you to turn to God in repentance and forgiveness. Or you can simply say, man, I feel sorry. Sorry that it happened. Suppress it and move on. And Herod here still has a choice. He could stop everything right now and repent, or he can go forward with it. And it says in verse 26, the second half, and because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He wanted to please man. He wanted to save face. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and he beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. You see, this is no true king. Herod was no true king. This is not a picture of a man in control. Ironically, Mark calls him king, but he's no king because he's a slave to his own passions. See, no sin exists in isolation. The Bible is clear when it comes to sin. Kill sin or sin will kill you and everything around you. Unless you silence sin, sin will silence and sear your conscience. And Herod's claim to sovereignty, saying he's the king, and I have a kingdom, and it's at my disposal, and I could give away half if I want to, is shown to be false. Because he can't even enforce his own will and not kill John the Baptist. He's no king. He, He doesn't have a kingdom. He's not like, hey, I'm in control here. I can do whatever I want. He's not, because he doesn't want to kill John the Baptist, but he has to. He can't even avoid what he hates. He doesn't really want to kill this preacher. He doesn't want to sever his head and serve it on a platter as his own birthday cake. And he's probably thinking, how did I get here? I mean, have you ever thought that before? How did I get here? How did I get here? Why am I who I hate? Why am I doing what I hate? If you're lucky, you still have those thoughts. Because at this very moment, right here, When Herod decided instead of being embarrassed at his own birthday party, he would behead the prophet to save face, at this moment, Herod's conscience was seared. It was seared. With the severing of John's head came the searing of Herod's conscience. When he said, sever his head, his conscience then became seared. At the end of the Gospels, Jesus is arrested, and he's sent to Herod, the same Herod. And Jesus stands before him, and all Herod wants to do is to be amused by Jesus. He wants Jesus to perform some really cool miracle for him. Hey, Jesus, could you turn water into wine for me? Can you do something really cool for me? Perform a miracle. And it says that Jesus doesn't answer him a word. And then Herod mocks him. Him and Herod's friends begin to mock Jesus. There is no spiritual interest at all in Herod anymore. There was no healthy fear anymore, no spiritual conviction anymore. That once had been there, his conscience was now totally seared. 
He didn't stand in front of him like he heard John the Baptist, like, teach me something. I want to hear it again, again and again. He wasn't like that anymore. He just like, play for me, Jesus. You're not going to play for me? We're going to mock you. He had no spiritual integrity at all anymore. Herod was so jaded at this point, his heart so calloused, his conscience so seared, his soul so dead, that standing face to face with Christ, he felt nothing. So what happened to Herod? Herod chose his God. It was not the God of the Bible. It was not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the New Testament. It was the fake kingdom and reputation and sexual lust. That was his God. And it seems when the opportunity for Herodias to kill John opened, the opportunity for Herod to repent closed. Because at that moment, Herod never had any spiritual, what we see anyways, any spiritual inclination whatsoever. He had a moment where he could have repented. He had a time when he was protecting John the Baptist when he could have said, I repent, but he didn't. And his conscience was seared. So what do we do? How do we get a clear conscience? A contrite heart in the face of truthful confrontation. When this church or a friend or the Bible or the Holy Spirit, whatever, confronts you with truth, what do you do? And the short answer is this, repent. And repent quickly. That's the short answer. Turn. Turn to God. John the Baptist's ministry was a ministry of repentance. At the heart of repentance was him pointing everything to Jesus. When John came on the scene, his life pointed to Jesus. His ministry pointed to Jesus. He said, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. He said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal straps. He actually said in John's gospel, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, our conscience is connected to our guilt, and our guilt is connected to our sin. And you can't have a clear conscience because you can't remove your sin. But Jesus can. He can remove your sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's death, just like John's life, pointed forward to the death that Jesus would die. John was an ultimate forerunner of Jesus in his life, in his ministry, in his baptism, and even in his death. Hebrews 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 14 says that, that it was Christ who offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See, it's dead works. It's futile work to try to wash yourself clean like Lady Macbeth. It can't happen. And try to clear your own conscience. What happens when you try to clear your own conscience? Two things. Either you grow jaded and callous, or you go mad with guilt. And the gospel of Jesus is not advice. It's an event that was done, and therefore it's news. Jesus died to free us. This is the news, that you and I are a mess. And we're way more sinful than we ever let on, probably way more sinful than we ever even realize. And specifically sinful, not generally, but also very specifically sinful. But you and I are more loved than you could ever think possible. And Jesus was our substitute. 
He died in our place. He died an unjust death just like John did, but his unjust death brings us the righteousness of God. John Stott says this, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man submitting himself for God or substituting himself for God. That's the essence of sin. I'm going to be my own God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where God only deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Jesus is our substitute. He is our, the one that can purify us from all sin, all wrongdoing, all guilt. Why? So we can have a free and clear conscience to go light fireworks? No. To worship God. To love and enjoy God. He has removed our guilt and our shame so that we can stand before God. The only way to be free is to turn to Jesus. And so what Mark does, he juxtaposes King Jesus with this pseudo-king right here, pointing everything to Christ like he does throughout his whole book. Let's pray. God, we, um, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you died in our place to set us free. And Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, if there's anyone in here, there's probably a lot of us, Lord, that need to repent, that need to turn. And I pray that becomes a very beautiful word in this church, a, bear, a very beautiful word in this city. We are not um, so prideful to think that certain people need to repent and not us but we all need to repent, Lord. But I know that there are certain sins that you want to bring out, Lord, not your, your spirit wants to deal with. And I pray that the sorrow would lead to repentance and freedom and not death. Would you save us, Jesus? Would you save us from ourselves? Keep us from being like Herod, we become so jaded by your gospel, so jaded by truth, so jaded. If we are jaded, would you break our hard hearts, our calloused hearts this morning, God, and turn us to Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.